six-year-old girl became deathly ill with a terrible disease. She needed a special blood transfusion, and her rare blood type further complicated the problem. The girl's nine-year-old brother qualified as a donor, but everyone was hesitant to ask him since he was so young. When the prospects then of another donor dissolved, they talked with the boy about it, and though he didn't, couldn't really understand all the dynamics about it, he said, sure, I'll give my blood for my sister. When the transfusion began, he took the needle in his arm, he closed his eyes, and he lay silently on the bed. And after the transfusion was completed, the doctors thanked the boy for saving his sister's life. And the brother had been so brave through the whole thing, but at this point he quietly began to cry, and he asked the doctor, so when do I die? So you, you understand the sacrifice that he made. Life and death confront us in interesting and surprising ways. Jesus was getting ready to set out on a journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like us, this man is interested in accomplishing things, in attaining things, in grabbing hold of things. And since he's wealthy, he's probably worked hard to become that way. Action on his part has led to those results. He's wealthy enough now, perhaps, that he can begin thinking beyond survival to more esoteric things like, what happens after I die? And yet that question comes to anyone, wealthy or not. What can I do to make that eternal life good rather than bad? Jesus replies first with the basic actions of morality and respect. And the man listens and he sees a list. This is my imagination. But that he sees this list in his head and he, he checks off each one. You shall not murder. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not steal. Check. You shall not bear false witness. Check. You shall not defraud. Check. Honor your father and mother. Check. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things since my youth. He's had a good life. Everything points to approval by society and by God. If we work hard, we get rewarded, right? If we work really hard, we get everything we want, right? Like Jesus. If being rich means that God is rewarding us for working hard, then why wasn't Jesus wealthy? Jesus and his disciples weren't wealthy, but they found treasure in heaven. And it's these riches that the wealthy man wants. What must I do to attain them? It's easy to gloss over what happens next. Mark says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's a touching phrase to me. What compassion and care we find in Jesus. Those of you who remember Dr. Gamble know that he seemed to have no peripheral vision. 
This is our pastor emeritus. And he, when he was talking to you, he was looking at you. And someone else might come up and be waiting to talk to him, and he was still focused completely on you. And that's how I picture Jesus here, as completely focused on this man. He was looking at him and loving him. Seeing what he needs most, Jesus tells him the hard truth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come, follow me. And when he heard this, the man was shocked and went away grieving because he had many possessions. Chuck Aaron reasons through this passage saying, one problem with this story is that we don't quite know what to do with Jesus' answer. On one level, it sounds simple. Jesus gives very clear instructions with no ambiguity and little room for interpretation. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor. How much more direct and clear-cut can Jesus be? We give up everything now, but we gain eternal life. The price is high, but the reward is worth it. We may not like the choice, but at least we know what Jesus expects and what we have to do. If we interpret the passage in this concrete way, however, Jesus' instructions to the man don't quite fit with the rest of the passage or with what we know about God's grace. Surely we do not pay our way into the kingdom of God, into the resurrection. Whatever eternal life is about, it is not a financial transaction. Eternal life is a gift from God. Interesting that he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And inheritance is always a gift. Aaron continues, interpreting this passage as a simple pay-as-you-go deal makes God into an extortionist, not a loving parent. So we have to keep looking deeper to understand what Jesus means. Perhaps Jesus is pushing us to see that we cannot earn our way into the dominion of God no matter what we do. Jesus said at the beginning of the passage that no one is good but God doesn't even claim goodness for himself. And maybe he's backing us into a corner, helping us to realize that we can't be good enough, nor can we give deeply enough to earn our way into eternal life. He might be leaving us no choice but to cling to grace. We cannot say that the passage is all about money. We cannot say that it is not at all about money. As Peter goes on to defend the disciples, they had given away everything. They had left their families, their homes, and everything else behind to follow Jesus. The passage is about more than our eternal, internal attitude towards money. Jesus calls us to give and to share and to sacrifice. We know one thing. We know that eternal life is God's gifts, and Jesus reminds the disciples of that. 
In a rather harsh-sounding teaching, Jesus snaps that it will be hard for the rich to enter the dominion of God. And with that catchy sound bite, he declares that it will be easier for the camel to go through what? The eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people who are interested in history of the time will tell us that the eye of the needle is a narrow gate into a city wall. But whether it's a narrow gate in a city wall or whether it's that little pesky hole in the top of the sewing needle that we can't get the thread through, both portray this humorous image of the inability of one creature to achieve something impossible. Our house has scars where the movers tried to carry the washing machine through the upstairs basement door. After banging it into the door jam several times, they realized that, oh, it wasn't going to fit. And they took it back outside and around and through the basement door. This text invites us to consider what worldly baggage would keep us from getting through a narrow door. Is it dependence on money that keeps us from finding security solely in God? Like this man who has approached Jesus? Is it a lack of time or even a lack of organization? Is it a set of doubts that seems to block our entrance to heaven? Is it some sort of addiction? What worldly or spiritual baggage makes it impossible for us to squeeze into heaven? Returning to Chuck Aaron's comments, he says, We know that for some people, money is spiritual baggage. The weight of their money, or the weight of their love of money, or the weight of their endless chase after money slows them down on their spiritual journey. And then, right after this harsh harsh message that singles out one group of people, Jesus gives the word of grace. What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Because we cannot save ourselves, God saves us. Why didn't Jesus just say that to the man? Obviously, he took his faith seriously. He sought Jesus out. He declared that the commandments were important to him. He kept them since his youth. Why didn't Jesus simply tell him that Eternal life is a gift. Where is Mark leading us in the story? We notice if we read closely that Jesus does not answer the man's question the same way the man asked it. It's not the only time in the scripture he does that. The man asked about inheriting eternal life, and Jesus answered him by telling him how to have treasure in heaven. They're not quite the same things. We don't buy our salvation by giving away all we have. What we do is make an investment in the kingdom of God. In any victory, in any success, the one who has invested the most celebrates the hardest. Think about a sports victory. Who celebrates the loudest? Is it the casual fan or the one who paints his face and wears the right colors and sleeps with a football tucked under his arm. 
Who celebrates the accomplishment of a completed project? The one who gave an afternoon of work or one who spent months sweating it out? Who will celebrate the kingdom of God most intensely? From, for whom will it matter the most? The more money we put on the table for God or the more whatever we put on the table for God, the louder will be our shout of triumph and the further in the air we will pump our fists when it arrives. Last year, my hardworking husband won us a trip to an all-inclusive resort on a Caribbean island. After we arrived at the airport and after the necessary bureaucracy there, porters gathered our luggage and drove us to the resort. And when we arrived, there wasn't one narrow door through which we could each walk single file. In fact, there was not a wall at all, just columns holding up the ceiling and someone to carry our suitcase for us, and someone else to offer us a tray with fruit punch on it. So we were relieved not only of our luggage, that kind of baggage, but we were relieved of all the other kind of baggage that we carry around as well. And here's the image of God's salvation. No walls. No squeezing through the door because of our hard work. The grace of God has made all things possible. Can we release our baggage here and now to begin enjoying more richly the wealth of this life? I don't mean money. A lot of us, uh, or our Sunday school class, is going through a book by Dave Ramsey called The Total Money Makeover. And he's talking about getting that part of our lives in order. He has what he calls baby steps that a person needs to take to get their financial life in order. And he starts with one thing, saving $1,000. And then he starts with a second thing, and that's getting our debt under control. And then he builds our emergency fund little by little. He's got a very specific plan on how to do this. But the thing is the idea of baby steps. And I think that's true for us in the Christian life as well. You know, when I think about all the baggage that I would try to carry through the eye of the needle, (laughs) you know, walking through like this, and here's the door, and there's no way. And I can't lay all that stuff aside at one time. But with baby steps and with God's grace, I can, little by little, make myself more fit for the kingdom of God. I think each of us can do that if we decide to try to follow Jesus as he invited that wealthy young man. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for risking great vulnerability to come to earth in the form of Jesus. We pray now that you would help us to risk releasing the insecurities of this life in honor of Christ and in thanksgiving for all of the many, many powerful and wonderful gifts that you give to us. Help us to be thankful in the name of Christ. Amen.